Well, by show of hands, who here knows that we're in a pandemic? Okay, I hear some chuckles. It's an obvious question, right? Well, the pandemic I'm talking about has been going on long before COVID-19. It'll happen long after, whenever that is. We're still during this current pandemic. And it's something that will escalate and worsen as we close the near end of times. And that's the mental health crisis, not the COVID-19. And today we're going to be talking about what the world needs now. It's not a vaccine, and this is not a statement on vaccination. What the world needs now is you, and you to work while it is day. And so the question is, well, what does that look like? For you in the different fields that you're in, in the different spheres of influence, the impact that you have, my hope is that you can gain practical tools for you to work while it is day. So we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in, because I always have the problem. I have a lot to cover and not a lot of time. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, God, we want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. We thank you for the opportunity to learn from you of what we can do in the different spheres of our influence, God. And we pray that this is not just information, that this is not just another event, another conference, that we may leave here with a personal calling in our lives and our hearts of how you want to use us to be a blessing to others and how you also want to bless us. So please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a couple objectives. Um, the first one is to discuss that mental health crisis, right? Before and during, um, and then also kind of think about it from an end-time perspective. We want to identify the primary needs. So again, what the world needs now. What are those needs? Identify the challenges and barriers that get in the way of those needs. Because sometimes we see needs, but there's something getting in the way of us actually fulfilling those needs then demonstrate practical ways to address those needs. And of course, to inspire all of you to be able to go forth and to work while it is day. So we're gonna first cover the mental health crisis. Now, I'm not gonna spend too much time on statistics. Um, the reason why is we don't have a lot of time and I just wanna highlight enough for you guys to get the understanding of how, how grave the mental health crisis is. So some of you might already know this. Um, they say about one in five Americans, this is in 2019, suffer from a diagnosable mental health disorder. Now some people say it's one in four, but the most solid data is one in five Americans. Now that's during the year. Over the course of their lifetime, it would be 50%. So think about, in this room, one in five, 50% over the course of their lifetime, and that was in 2019. So you might start wondering, what would be the statistics now? And then thinking about suicide for a moment, a lot of you are medical professionals, and you start thinking about, okay, what are the, the diseases I work with? What are the conditions I work with? And a lot on this list, right? We think about heart disease, we think about lung disease, liver disease, but you notice that suicide is among the top 10 leading causes of death. So you can see there in the bottom, top 10 across all ages. But then I want you to take a look at this age group here. Oh, skipping. 
The young age groups, we see 10 to 14, 15 to 24, and 25 to 34. It's the second leading cause of death. Second to unintentional injury, which is a very big category that lumps in a lot of things that they couldn't categorize in other categories. So second leading cause of death, and this in 2019. So again, what would the numbers be today? Now thinking about, again, this was 2019, what would it be like in the future? We can kind of look at the trend here. So this is the past two decades from 1999 to 2019. And what we generally see is an upward trend. Now it doesn't look like a big increase, right? But from those, those two decades, it's a 33% increase in two decades alone. So you might wonder, well, what about with COVID-19? What's going on with the statistics? So we see here, they don't have you know, a complete analysis of the data of what the mental health conditions of our world is today. But you can see a comparison from 2019 to 2021. And just looking at anxiety and depressive symptoms, it goes from 11% to 41%. That's huge. And this was in January of 2021. Some believe that with the statistics for mental health during COVID, that there's kind of a, it's not a good analysis of really what's to come because when a natural disaster or another calamity happens, they have this thing what they call pulling together phenomenon where people actually come together and you might see a decrease in mental health concerns because people are coming together, helping each other, right? We're all in this together, but then, Later on, they expect there might be an even further decline. So our country, our world, is at a place that's very concerning for the trajectory of mental health. And that's no surprise to us. Now, that's a little bit of the statistics, but in a day in my office, I've been doing therapy for about six years now, and when COVID happened, I saw a dramatic shift. And some of you might be in the mental health profession or you might work with patients and you may have seen this as well. Now I put here world versus church to just give you a couple examples. People who have no particular faith background, many of you could have noticed, all of a sudden the world is ending, right? They had significant hopelessness, especially for those who had this idea that it's gonna get better. They were looking not only at COVID, but the presidency and the elections the racism and the hate going on in our world, and they had this deep despair. Now, what would you expect from the church, people who had faith? You would expect, oh, for them to not have mental health concerns, right? They would be full of hope. What I found was interesting. I had a lot of individuals either call the office or message me on Facebook. I have this hope, right, that Jesus is going to come again but I'm going to be condemned. I don't know how many clients I've had who've either had a strong impression or actual whisper, you are lost during this pandemic. So they saw the crisis, they had the hope of a future, but for themselves personally, they were in great despair and almost to the extent of the hopelessness of the world, because they themselves didn't believe that they would be saved. So the mental health crisis is not just in the world, it's even in our church. 
and it's causing significant impairment. You think about in someone's individual life, you think about the impact on their relationships, you think about the impact on the church. We are suffering. Now, does the Bible say anything about the mental health in the end times? We think about pestilences and natural disasters, and you know, some of you can name specific verses in the Bible of the end time events and the signs, but we often don't think about what about the quality of the people in the end times? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now again, we think about natural disasters, we think about pestilences, but what about the end times? Is there something that the Bible says about the quality of the people during the end times? Does anyone have 2 Timothy chapter 3? Yes. Can you read verses 1? Let's start with the first couple of verses 1 to 3. And continue to verse 5. We often read these verses from a spiritual lens, but I want you to take a look at these verses from a mental health perspective. You see things like lack of self-control. You look at things like pleasures of lovers of pleasure. Think about behavioral addictions, people shopping, uh, Netflix binge watching, right? This is a quality of the people, a description of the people. And what's even scarier is this is talking about people within the church. So what we can expect in the end times is that the mental health crisis, which is already a crisis, is only bound to get worse, both in the world and in the church. And if you think about it from a great controversy perspective, What's the worst that can happen with a coronavirus? Anyone? You die? Death. What's the worst that can happen from a mental health perspective with the virus? Salvation. Because if your mind is not healthy, your mind is where you connect with God. So it's no wonder that the enemy is attacking mental health. The big enemy is not coronavirus. It's our mental health, which we are able, of course, especially the frontal lobe, where we connect with God the most. So from a great controversy perspective and from a biblical perspective, we know that this crisis is going to get worse. Ooh. <laughs> so the question is, Boy, okay. How do we address this mental health crisis? Should we just go home right now? Leave you in all despair and hopelessness? It's a big crisis, but no solution? Question is, well, what do you think the world needs then? You can start boiling this down. Well, what do your patients need? What do you need? Any thoughts? What do you think the world needs right now? Hope. What else? Jesus, amen. What else? Example of genuine love. 
Okay, yes. Anyone else? Hope, Jesus, genuine love, peace. So I asked, I did my own research, very extensive research on social media, of course. And these are some of the responses. Peace, hope, connection, kindness, compassion, truth, faith. I like this response, to read the desire of ages. Yes, why? Because it connects you deeply with a God of love. Christians who point people to Christ. You would hope that it would just be Christians, period. But Christians who point people to Christ to know God, to know how much God loves us, a revelation of God, a revelation of God's true character. Now, oh, okay, I'll just stop using this. Now, some of you, maybe when you read the title of today's presentation, maybe there was a tune ringing in your head, right? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Written in 1960, but it still applies. What the world needs now is love. Now, it's interesting, written so long ago, and yet it's still what the world needs. And why is that? We know because God is love. What the world needs now is God. But what does that look like, right? And what, before we actually address what that looks like practically, what are the barriers or challenges that are getting in the way of addressing those needs? Now, just to go back to this for a second, what I want to highlight is some things that are not on the list. Some things that are not on the list are physical needs. What the world needs now is we're not talking about, oh, they, we need more food, we need more water. It's not saying that we need to work more. It's not saying that we need to have, you know, more time to be on social media. And why I find that interesting is because although we know this is what the world needs, we're still striving for these other things. Think about your own life. You may know I know I need God, and yet I'm still scrolling on Facebook. I may know that my patient needs God, and yet I'm still overly focused on addressing their physical problem. In the church, I may know that people need a connection with God, and yet I'm overly focusing on doctrine. Now, doctrine's not bad. Healing your patient, your physical needs, not bad. But what the world really needs so I want to help you all to, yes, recognize the immediate needs of, you know, helping your patients, but to think about the deeper needs. Because often we are striving for what we want, but denying our very deep own needs. So what are the barriers or challenges that get in the way? Any ideas? What do you think are the barriers, either for yourself or for others, that get in the way of Addressing those deeper needs, the peace, the hope, the connection. Yes. Trauma. Okay. Definitely. Distractions. Nobody here gets distracted. Busyness. Yes. Any others? Fear. Sin. Yeah. Sin just captures a lot of different things. So I want you to think about in your own life what gets in the way. So busyness is probably the number one. So they actually done research on this, especially, for example, with physicians. 
what gets in the way of physicians being able to provide for those deeper needs? The top two ones were busyness and lack of competency. Now, what I found interesting, and we're going to look at Jesus a little bit later on, but it didn't get in the way of Jesus' ministry. So I put here the, the example of the hemorrhaging woman, which is one of my favorite um, biblical accounts. Jesus was on his way to heal someone else. He could have said, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no time for that. I, I'm on a mission. I'm on God's mission. And yet, he didn't. And he had the opportunity. She came, touched his garment, and it says her blood was immediately dried up. She could have left. He could have left. He could have kept on going, saying she's already healed. But Jesus was intentional about stopping. And why? Why was Jesus intentional about stopping? Because he wanted to meet her deeper needs. He didn't focus on the physical. The physical was already taken care of. It says, and Luke highlights this specifically, that he pauses and says, who touched me, right? And then asks her in the presence of all for her to share her, her story. Because he knew that sharing her story was a part of her healing process. So Jesus paused in his busyness in order to address the deeper needs of this woman. Because this woman suffered from shame of being um, unclean for 12 years. It wasn't just about the blood. So for you and your profession, it's not just about filling a blank. There are deeper needs that need to be met. Mindlessness. So someone mentioned distractions. Often we're mindless, right? It's not that we don't care, but we're just going about to and fro, not thinking about the deeper need. Self-centeredness. Oh, no, no, I got to get my job done, right? I have to see 10 patients today. I don't have time. Self-centeredness. Now, sometimes it's awareness. Sometimes we're not even aware of those deeper needs. Lack of competency. Now, I'm going to address this a little later on in regarding motivational interviewing because that's often what people then say, okay, I can't assess for those needs or I can't address them, so I'm going to learn motivational interviewing. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then priority. Now, Google's CEO did a 60-second speech on you have five balls. I don't know how many of you have heard of this. And he says, those five balls, one is rubber, the rest are glass. And there's work. Let me see if I remember this. There's work, there's family, there's spiritual health, I believe mental health and social health. And he said that of those balls, work is the only rubber ball. We can allow work to drop, right? But often, if you think about it, we treat our mental health, our social health, our spiritual health as those rubber balls, and work as the glass ball. And so if we're treating work as a glass ball and we're actually having the glass balls fall, right, it's priority, not just for yourself, but what are the priorities you have in treating your patients? Are you prioritizing the physical health and neglecting the deeper needs? Now, self, someone mentioned trauma, someone mentioned fear, right? Sometimes there's something within ourselves that get in the way of actually addressing others' needs. So for ourselves too, if I don't prioritize my own mental well-being, am I going to be able to attend and attune to other people's needs? No. And a lot of that is it's tied into burnout. We work, 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 
And so we're so burnt out that we're not able to be present. Have you ever had that experience where you're talking with somebody and then you're like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what they've been saying for the last couple minutes. You're laughing because it's happened. Now, I'm a therapist, and I will admit it's happened to me too. And then if they ask you, wait, wait, what was I just saying? I lost my train of thought. And you're like, oh boy. It's a good sign to recognize I am burnt out. If I'm burnt out, I can't attune to the needs of others. It could be a lack of or poor boundaries. If I don't set boundaries in my life, recognizing, okay, this is work time, this is family time, this is mental health, this is spiritual time, then I'm going to end up not having a good mental well-being to be there for others. Avoidance and addiction. And you say, oh, that doesn't happen here. Oh, addiction doesn't happen in the church. Someone's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we may not struggle with substances in the way that others do. But there are a lot of behavioral addictions. Overworking. Ministry. So ministry, how is ministry an addiction? is if we over-engage in it as a way to escape our own wounds. Now, some of us go into ministry because our wounds have been healed by Jesus and we want to give to others. That's different. But if we're trying to escape our own trauma by overworking or over-engaging in ministry. Addiction can also be sugar addiction. We say, oh, I don't eat meat, but how's your sugar intake? So we have our own struggles. And it's okay to struggle, but are we bringing our own struggles to Christ to heal us so that we could also be there for others? God never wants you to heal others while you yourself are not healed. We have this concept that, oh, love others, right? And so I sacrifice everything. I'm burnt out. I'm giving all for the ministry. But it says love others as yourself. God values you too. God died for you too. And so especially if you're neglecting your spiritual walk in order to serve others, God does not intend for that either. Are your needs being met? Now within our church, so I put here amen seven years ago. So I attended, so this is a little confession time. Seven years ago was my first time and last time at amen. It's not because I didn't enjoy it. Uh, but I came and me being a graduate student at that time, I was excited about, I'm going to learn how to integrate faith into practice and mental health. And I came, and it was only focused on medicine and dentistry. And it was a blessing still. I learned other things. But I realized there was nothing addressing those deeper needs. We were talking about a whole person health message, and yet we were neglecting some aspects of the person. And we know that Jesus didn't do that in his his ministry. And what's interesting, if you think about the Laodicean church, it says, right, that they're blind, that we have no need of anything. And sometimes as a church, we're blinded to recognize the deeper needs. But praise God, seven years later, and here we are, not just in this seminar, I was just attending Dr. Scow's And there are others, even Dr. Walsh mentioning the war over our mind, that we're recognizing, right? And Spirit of Prophecy already highlighted it for many, many years, saying it's the greatest work to work with the mind. Not just a good work or an okay work, it's the greatest work. And so we are now more aware, praise God, 
and we need to because we're preparing to fight this crisis that's going to get worse. So these are some barriers. So the question is, well, how do we address these barriers, especially as providers? And so most people say, okay, we have to do motivational interviewing. By show of hands, who here has heard or had any training in motivational interviewing? So the vast majority, some of you know, but most of you. Now, I might mention some concepts, and it start, might start ringing a bell for you, and you're going to say, oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of that. But motivational interviewing is basically a fundamental process of communication styles that directs, guides, and follows a person to self-discovery through effective conversations involving stages of change. So essentially, you're trying to help a person move from ambivalence about change to action, to readiness, and actual engagement in change. And so here are some of the basic stages, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and then some people add the relapse um, as reality has it. Sometimes you can relapse and then start this process again. Now, one thing you notice about the definition is it emphasizes communication styles and conversations, right? It's a teamwork approach, you and the other person, uh, to help them in making that change. So I'm going, to co I'm going to cover some motivational interviewing skills, uh, but it's going to be an overview. So don't expect an in-depth um, education on MI, and you'll see why I'm doing this. So there's four key principles, partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. And then there's a couple of acronyms that they use. So I'm just going to highlight a couple. Rules, one of them, it says to resist telling them what to do. We often like to do that, right? Tell someone what to do, direct them, try to convince them. Um, understand, understand their motivation, understand what they're struggling with, what, understand their needs. Listen, and not just listen, listen with empathy. Seek to understand their values, their motivations, even the barriers that are getting in the way. E, empower them. Empower them to work with you to set goals, to change behaviors. So this is the rule in motivational interviewing. And I see a lot of people taking pictures. I don't think you might, you may not need those pictures because I'll tell you the secret to doing all of this. ORs is another common acronym. Open-ended questions, not closed-ended. We often ask, oh, um, do you want to change, yes or no? Open-ended questions. Affirmations to help overcome their negative thoughts or their self-sabotaging thoughts. Reflections. And then summarize. Let your patient know that they are being heard. Now, me being in the field of mental health, I used to work in a primary care clinic with family medicine res residents as a behavioral health consultant to teach them how to do these skills. So when I first learned it, I thought, oh, how, how interesting. Um, these are pretty basic. If you think about the essence of what this is talking about, saying, listen, understand, encourage, and yet there's these fancy acronyms, right? This comes to no surprise when we look at the Bible and we look at Jesus. So I want us to think about now looking at these different 
um, acronyms and principles. What are some examples in which Jesus used these different skills? So let me give you an example. It says one of the principles is compassion. You look at Jesus' miracles, the most repeated phrase in Jesus' miracles, does anyone know? He was moved with compassion. So that was the heart of Jesus' healing ministry, moods with compassion. Now, partnership. Does anyone have an example of when Jesus partnered with somebody in their healing? I hear a mumble. Yes, rise, take up your bed, and walk. That's an excellent example to use because earlier he says, do you want to be made whole? That is a open-ended question, right? Because the man responds with an opportunity to explain. It's also trying to understand what's getting in the way, because then he says, oh, but there's no man to take me to the waters. It's a reflection. We see Jesus using this in different ways, but it's a partnership. Yes, I can give you the ability, I can heal you, but he says, You take up your bed and walk. There's a partnership. He's empowering him to be a part of his own healing process. Any other examples that we see Jesus using these principles or these skills? Yeah, go wash. Mm -hmm. The woman at the well, that's an excellent example. How do you see Jesus using MI in that story? Yes. A lot of evocation, right? Yeah. And he doesn't just tell her immediately, say, you need to fix this, you need to do this, right? Resisting the urge, we often say in motivational interviewing. Instead, he engages in a conversation with her. So Jesus used MI before MI was even around. Now, we see here that Jesus, it says in Matthew 4.23, that he went about teaching, preaching, and healing. And specifically, though, when we read that, we think surface level. We're thinking about the the surface level needs. But when we look at Luke 4, we actually see the deeper needs. It says, his mission statement, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the wounds, the physical wounds of the people. No. What does it say? The brokenhearted, the deeper needs of the people. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Was Jesus going to different prisons all the time to proclaim liberty? This is a deeper need. It's a deeper liberty. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Deeper needs. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus engaged in MI because he understood his mission was to address what the world needed now. He understood the deeper needs of the people. That's why he did MI. And so do we recognize the deeper needs? And if we do, that will naturally lead us to do MI. So let me ask you this. Can you teach someone to be more empathic? Can you teach someone to be like Jesus? That's a tricky one. Can you teach someone to pray? I love this response. We're getting some strong no's, some yes, and some people a little 
agitated. <laughs> it's a yes and no, right? Everyone, everything can be learned, but it's how you learn it experientially. Often we think that we can teach people by giving them a set of things to do. So I'm going to share with you some experiences that I had both professionally and personally that adds to this. So from a professional um, experience, again, going back to teaching uh, medical students and residents how to use MI, what I noticed, they even gave us evaluation forms. So we would teach them, and then we'd pair them up and have them do these exercises. And you could see early in the, the semester or quarter that you could already see who might be good at MI. They didn't know any of the skills. And then you had the students or the residents that were very, very ambitious, and they'd learn all the skills, and yet they didn't pass their evaluation. Because to learn skills, to learn ORs and rule and the principles, is not enough. Are you being taught or are you learning just a checkmark list, or are you actually changing yourself that then reflects naturally? But I want to take some time to talk about personal experiences. And I know I don't have too much time because we started a little late, um, and I have too many stories to share. So I'm just going to share a couple. So I used to work um, at Loma Linda University Medical Center, and I was on the palliative care team, so working with the serious and terminally ill patients. And there's so many stories to tell, but I want to share one that uh, really taught me one of the key lessons about prayer and how to utilize prayer to reach the deeper needs of your patients. Now, this is actually a picture from one of the beds there at the med center. And so this individual, he's about maybe in his early 70s, uh, Caucasian male. Uh, I don't remember all the diagnoses. It was years ago, but he, was, he had stage 4 cancer. And we went in. We were consulted to go in and provide support to him and his family. And it was myself, and I was supervising a student. And so it was one of her first times to observe. And so not only do you have the pressure of making sure that you have a connection with your, your patient, but then you're also trying to teach the student. And during this time in my personal walk, I was wrestling with how do I integrate faith into my practice? And unfortunately, um, in psychology, it's a big no-no. And so I never learned from my professors. I never learned in my training. And so I was just winging it. I was asking God, guide me. And so um, I learned a lot by error, but this particular situation, I went in, I was talking with him, and I was getting nowhere. This individual was a great at, he was great at deflecting. Of course, a defense mechanism, because he didn't want to talk about the cancer. And his daughter was there, and um, they told me that basically the reason why he's deflecting is because his wife had just beat cancer, and he needed to be strong for her. And so kept on talking, and you learn that in an inpatient setting, you, if you don't get somewhere with a patient, you just kind of wrap it up and try again the next day. And so I'm wrapping it up, and you know, I ask him, you know, any religious background, any do you identify with any religion? No. Immediately, very stern, I'm atheist. Okay, kept on the conversation. And then to close, this is when I was trying to wrestle with, you know, how to integrate faith. I got this impression, pray for him. And I was like, nope. 
He just said he's atheist and he's very firm about it and I've made no connection with him. Like sometimes you make a connection, you're like, okay, let me maybe offer. No connection, like here are students watching me, this is going nowhere, and the impression got stronger and stronger. So what do you think I did? I prayed. Well, I offered to pray. What do you think he said? <laughs> no. He said, yes. And I was like, oh my. And now I have to think about, well, what am I going to pray? <laughs> but I prayed. And as I said, amen, I look up and this man is bawling. He's weeping. I have no idea why till this day. But I left and I know that a seed was planted. So that was one story. Another story I want to share quickly is, well, I have too many stories, but I'm going to share one now in an outpatient mental health setting. So it's kind of hard to see, but this is a PCL. So we, I use screeners to kind of assess certain symptoms in the beginning, and then I track it throughout different sessions. And this individual, young guy in his early 30s, uh, PTSD, both um, had a recent near-death experience as well as chronic childhood trauma. But we were focusing on processing the most recent trauma. Um, he was held at gunpoint, feared for his life. It's a big story. But basically, 74, you see the, the line across? That's You have to get 45 or above in order to have PTSD, to qualify for PTSD. This individual had 74. Very, very severe traumatic symptoms. And in our first assessment, I asked him about his religious background. And similar to the other man, no. Atheist, and he even went on a little rant about hating Christians and how his in-laws were Christian. And very you could sense a lot of anger towards God, towards Christians, or a bunch of hypocrites. And at the end of the session, by this time, I was already praying regularly with patients. And I offered to pray. He said yes, surprisingly. Actually, no. He said, uh, it's up to you. I was like, oh. And in mental health, you have to be even more sensitive because you can often be accused of imposing your, your beliefs on patients. If you're in the medical field or in another field, you, you guys have a little bit easier in that you have looser boundaries with clients or patients that you could invite them to Bible study, you could you know, do a lot of things. Often with a therapist-client uh, relationship, it's so sensitive that you have to be very, very careful. So when he said, it's up to you, I was like, uh, no, it's up to you. And he looked back and he's like, if you want. And I was like, well, if you want. <laughs> and so back and forth for a little bit, and I said, I'll, how about this? I'm going to pray for you. And then, if you're not comfortable, next time, you let me know. And that way, if I know that prayer is good for somebody, I'm going to offer it. And I'll push a little bit if they're allowing me to, but I won't push so far as to not allow them to feel like they have a choice. So I said, I will pray for you. But if next time you don't want me to, you're the boss. So I prayed, said amen, and this man was crying. Now, I don't know why he was crying, but over time, you notice that these symptoms are dramatically being reduced to the point where, you see the last one that we did together was 22. Doesn't even qualify, doesn't have any symptoms. It has a couple, but 
more lingering of certain beliefs he has about people, but not the hypervigilance, the hyperarousal, and the other common tra trauma symptoms. But what was so profound is over the course of this treatment is we started addressing some of those beliefs about God because a lot of his traumas was rooted in how could God do this to me? How could God test me this way? How could God punish me this way? Because all of his life, he was taught by people that God was a certain God. And we talked about Job, and we're like, you know, there's another side of the story. There's another person involved here, another character. And what I noticed is over time, as he, his view of God changed, he started opening up. And he started saying things like, you know, I tried to talk to God the other day. I don't really know how to pray. And, you know, I wasn't really at a church because I need to be in a church to pray. Have you heard that before? Or I need to go to a priest, he said, to, to go confess. And then I shared with him the quote in Steps to Christ that says, prayer is like opening up your heart as to a friend. And our last session, which was actually yesterday, he opened up to say, yesterday I was doing yard work for hours and I found myself talking to God throughout the whole time. He's having this open conversation with God. And what was so beautiful too is he was talking about, you know, how do people have these beliefs then about this type of God? And so that was the opportunity to share the great controversy with him. And so I don't know what's going to happen with that, but just one prayer opened up the opportunity to have a conversation about God throughout our many sessions together. And you notice that both circumstances, it was easy to judge from the external to say, no, right? I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to offer. But I want to give you some tips in our last couple of minutes together about how, and this is not tips to say, oh, okay, I got to do this. These are things I naturally learned as I genuinely want, wanted to, to help people and to share with them about God, is ask if you can pray for them. So the reason why it's important to say that you want to pray for them is a lot of people think that you're asking them to pray themselves and they don't feel comfortable. So ask to pray for them. And when you offer, you want to offer casually. And why I say casually is because if you... If, you, if it seems like you're singling them out, they might feel pressured versus, hey, I, this is typically what I say, oh, at the end of every session, I offer to all my patients prayer. For a lot of them, it brings a lot of comfort and joy. Would you like if I prayed for you? Something very simple. But if you casually offer and explain why, I say because a lot of people find comfort. And there's no script. I don't want anyone to be writing down a script of how to say this. It has to come from you genuinely wanting something for them. They say, it's like if somebody says, I'm thirsty, and you have a, you know, a water bottle that hasn't been opened, are you going to put the water down their throat? They're thirsty. No, you're going to offer. You're going to say, this is, it's over here. Do you want it? Right? Casually, but also explain why. Be confident. If you know that water is good for that person, are you going to be like, oh, no. I shouldn't offer them water, even though they're really, really thirsty. No, you're going to offer it because you know it's what's good for them. 
It's almost as if I heard a physician once say this. It's like practicing, it's malpractice. If you know that something is good for them and you're not offering it to them, it's malpractice. Now, what to pray for? It's interesting. We, we often think, oh, other denominations or other churches are very formal in their prayers. And yet, when we think about praying for people, we're trying to think about, well, what should I pray for? It has to be beautiful. It has to sound really eloquent. I'm not the best prayer, or whatever that means. And that has been an absolute blessing. Why? Because I model to my patients that anyone can pray. It's almost as if you shouldn't sound like a really good prayer. Right? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that so-and-so and me can come together and chat for a bit. It doesn't have to sound formal or beautiful. Just show to the patient that they can open their heart up to God as to a friend. How to pray, right? And, and going back quickly to what to pray for, whatever comes up in the session, right, or, or the meeting, be specific. How to pray, pray with a genuine heart seeking for the Holy Spirit to guide you in that moment. Because what happens is, if you think about metacognition, thinking about our thinking, that's what gets in the way of true connection, being present in the moment. So if you're trying so hard to think about what to pray, you're not going to have a prayer that connects that person to heaven, right? You're an advocate connecting them to heaven and to the Heavenly Father. When to pray? Always. Whether if they accept in session or afterwards in your heart, pray always. Maya Angelou says, at the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or did. They will remember how you made them feel. Think about your own experience, how true that has been. And so it's not just about praying, it's how you made them feel, how you connected them with God in that moment, right? Because you're addressing the deeper needs. So before, so this is application, before you even have an encounter with a patient, with a friend, with whomever, you need to pray and ask God to open your eyes and open your heart. Because if you don't, if you just expect to show up to a session and be able to have this encounter with people, you're not going to have it. Because MI is not just skills you learn. They say it's the spirit of MI. The Holy Spirit in you, if you're praying beforehand, having your own walk with God, and also asking intentionally for opportunities, I started uh, writing a book, putting all the encounters I had, and I stopped because I started having so many encounters that I couldn't keep up. And that was because I was saying, God, I want to be used. It's not about skills. It's about having the genuine, earnest desire to be used by God. So ask God for desire, willingness. Ask God to see those opportunities. It's kind of like that song, right? The open my heart that I may, right? And then it later says, for the spirit to illumine me. That song is powerful. I used to sing that, that song every time before clinic. In the moment, pray for his divine will. Listen, silently wait for God to give you those opportunities. Act. Now, what I find interesting about act is if you look at the language of these different verses, 
It says, let your light shine. Is that force your light? Is that, you know, try to figure out how to train yourself to be a brighter light? Let. It's natural. You are salt. Now, fragrance. This is often a verse that we don't think of, but it's the verse that says that he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. We are also the fragrance. You can think about sometimes when you walk up next to a person, it's maybe a fragrance you don't want to smell. What is the fragrance that you are naturally giving off? Now, resources. I recognize that sometimes, that sometimes we have limited time, and sometimes I can't address everything that I want to. So think about then intentionally giving your patients or others resources. So here are a couple. And Dr. Binus, you'll be proud that we're mentioning the Brain People podcast. <laughs> so through Beautiful Minds, we have started a podcast called the Brain People Podcast. Um, so you, if you have a patient that really likes to listen to podcasts, give them a podcast. Um, if they, if you don't really have a lot of time and just want to give them a quick little uh, pamphlet, there's a glow track on secrets of peak mental health. Um, Audioverse has so many different sermons and trainings. And then Mana Ministry, my sister's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and together we have a YouTube channel in which we talk about mental health and the Bible. So how do we learn practical mental health tips through the Bible? So we go through CBT. And so all of these are different resources, including Steps to Christ, Great Controversy, some of the other ones we already think about. But you start to plant the seed in your encounter, that personal connection. And then ask God to direct you, should I give one of these resources to my patients or to those that I encounter? And that way, the Spirit can continue the work that you have already started. But a lot of people jump to this before they even have the connection. Now, that's not to be hard on them. Sometimes if you really can't establish that connection and God is impressing to share some of these resources, still share. But if you have the opportunity to have a connection, connect and then share. Especially if you do it with a personal way of saying, you know, I just listened to this podcast and it was really impactful in my own life. Have a listen, right? That's more convincing than if you just, oh, I give this to every single patient, here you go. So, and then after, it's also about praying again, praying for that person, praying for yourself. And then you notice at the bottom, repeat. Next day you wake up, ask for an open heart. It's not a one-time consecration. It's a daily consecration. And I, I, I can say that. There's been times where I'm like, okay, God, I'm in this routine of, of witnessing to patients. But if it's not a daily thing, it'll drift off. So what the world needs now is you. If you think about it, don't, caught up, don't get caught up in the MI skills or the other things that people are trying to say, oh, you need to study this out. You can even think about, I remember I went to AFCO one time and I was trying to take notes of how do you witness? It reminds me of an example. If you fill a cup to the brim, right, and you do it by accident, and you're walking around, and you're trying not to spill on people. If you are so filled with Christ, you don't need to learn skills. 
it'll naturally happen. So all the world needs is really you, for you to be present. The hope, the peace, the kindness, it's found in you. And if you remember the list, the end of the list, when it says a true revelation, a revelation of God's true character, how is that shown? In you. Do people see Jesus in you? Some of the best compliments I've ever received in my life is when somebody looks at me and says, I just see Jesus in you. I remember I had a client who said, you have something in your eyes. And I was like, huh? Like, you have Jesus. Do people see Jesus in you? So, John 9, 4, the, the theme text for this weekend, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Think about that. The night is coming. When we think about the mental health crisis getting worse, it's going to get worse and it's going to come to a point where we can't work the way that we would like to. Imagine that. So work while it is day. Work now. What are you doing now with God, with what God has entrusted you? And so I want you to personalize this for yourself. I, Katie, will work the works of him who sent me while it is day. It's a commitment. Now, this is not for you to just say because it's nice we're here at an event. If you truly believe this, if you truly want to commit to this, I ask you to just close your eyes and say this. I, so-and-so, will work. I am committing to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So what is God sending you to do now while it is day? In your professional, in your personal life, whether it's to start praying with patients, whether it's to be more present with patients, Maybe you're saying the barriers in my own life, I just need to start there. I'm overly busy or I'm addicted to a substance or to uh, whatever it may be. What is God calling you to do, whether in your professional life or in your personal life? While it is day. It reminds me of the verse that says, and whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And how did Isaiah respond? Here am I, send me. I hope that that's your experience in thinking about what the world needs now is not other things, it's me. God working through me to show and reveal the true character of a God of love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I get so excited to just talk about you and to share you with others, to share and inspire these individuals here, God, to just let their light shine, God. I pray that we may not get caught up in the checklist or the things to do or feel like we're not inadequate or we need more training, but we can just truly listen to your spirit, to allow your spirit to work through us, God. So I pray that the individuals here or those who are watching or that will let's listen later on, God, that the conviction in their hearts today may continue to burn until your second coming, God that we may be able to say, here am I, and also, God, the people that you have entrusted to me. May we be faithful servants, and I pray, God, that you may continue to just reveal yourself in us and through us. 
as Moses' face was shining as he left your presence. May we leave here and including this event, God, with our face shining, knowing that we have seen you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.